Flight Suit Friday. What is going on? I'm your host, Kenny, and I'm sitting next to uh, Trusty Sam here. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, I'm trusty. Definitely trusty. Uh, drinking a delicious beer right now. I've already cracked one. Uh, I cracked it before we even started here. There goes mine. I could. Yeah, what do you got? What do you got going uh, on? We've still got the Fort George theme going on. Okay. The Optimist, 6.2%. I'm going 7.7 with a Vortex IPA. Flagship. Definitely a flagship beer. Um we are wrapping up our last day of the spring AHAR session. We've had uh, five successful student weeks, uh, including having the Royal Canadian Air Force out this week uh, coming down from um, British Columbia, which is awesome to have them in the classroom again. So that's really cool. And we got to see our own uh, Amanda Harris. She was a part of that crew. So yep. that was pretty cool to see her. Today, we get the honor to talk to uh, Mayor Bruce Jones, who will be joining us. So uh, let's get into it. Okay, let's start it. <laughs> Welcome to Flight Suit Friday. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yes, yeah, sir. Thanks so much for joining us. It looks like you uh, have a pristine beer in your hand as well. well. I appreciate you guys providing me a tasty beverage from one of our local uh, brew pubs. This is the Fort George City of Dreams, 5.5%. Very nice. I also like the Fort George Vortex IPA, a little oh, bit yeah. higher alcohol. Bowie Beer has some good ones. Uh, Czech Pilsner I like, and the Bowie IPA is good. Mm-hmm. And uh, Astoria Brewing Company also has some fine beverages. So all in all, a great place to retire to if oh, you yeah. fine beverages. And what do you got? There's Reach Break Brewing, isn't? and then you got Rogue across. Oh, yeah. Lots, lots of choices. Not enough choices. Yeah, in the morning, we have some great <laughs> coffee shops as well. So yeah. all around coffee, beer, what else do you want? Nice yeah. view of the river we got right behind Beautiful. you. Beautiful. Yeah, the weather. We're just day right now, The actually. fact that the sun is actually out right now is ridiculous. I can't believe that. Um Sir, thanks for joining us. How, how long have you been in the town of Astoria now? So I came here in 2011 as the sector commander, air station CO. That was my last assignment. I finished up a 30-year career here in Astoria in 2014. And, mm-hmm. you know, usually you finish a military career and you think, okay, I got to make one more move, right? Because wherever I am now is probably not where I want to be. So we're going to yeah. have to move again. And really within six months of coming to Astoria, my wife and I decided that uh, we didn't need to move again. You know, this is yeah. it's a great town. We really, really enjoy living here. It's beautiful. It's a small town uh, with lots to do. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, how long have you been the mayor for, sir? I am in my fourth year. Fourth year? Fourth of a four-year term as mayor. I was on the city council two years before that. Never yeah. had any interest in local politics at all. Uh, but after I retired from the Coast Guard, some people asked me to think about running for city council. So I started going to meetings. I enjoyed the meetings. And I, I'm kind of a, a policy geek. And I actually like management, sorry to say, but it's true. <laughs> uh, deficiency on my part. But um, yeah, so I've enjoyed uh, being involved in local politics and contributing to the community in that way. Are you going to go for a re-election? Nope, campaign? nope. I'm going um, to wrap it up at the end of this term. So six years in total on the city council. That's about enough. It's a volunteer job. I have another full-time job working yeah. at the Columbia River Maritime Museum. So it's been a great, very rewarding experience. But I'm going to pass the baton to someone else on January uh, 1st. But uh, about another 10 months to go almost until nice. then. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm still planning on uh, staying in Astoria. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. We were fortunate enough to uh, purchase a house about eight years ago on the water, an old house it built in the 1880s, and we've put a lot of time into fixing it up. Did you say and, uh, eight, 1880s? 1880s, yeah, oh, wow. yeah. One of these, you know, lots of old houses in Astoria. It's part of the charm of the town. Beautiful old historic homes built by some of the the Finns and the Norwegians and other immigrants who came here. Yeah, ours was actually built by a Scotsman, uh, McGregor, William McGregor. Oh, nice. Uh, I have been saying uh, Astoria incorrectly uh, for a couple of years now after coming out. I always say in Astoria, and uh, <laughs> I 
there we had another pilot, uh, instructor pilot, Derek Schrammel, who was stationed here back in the day at, at the sector. And I would make fun of him, like, why are you saying Astoria? That makes no sense. <laughs> Until he set me straight because he got set straight by some local, uh, local individuals saying that was incorrect. Uh, so you did 30 years in the Coast Guard? Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, okay. 30 years, eight months, and four days, I think it was. Enjoyed <laughs> okay. every, every minute of it and uh, no regrets. Um, you know, once you hit 20, of course, you're eligible to retire. And they kept giving me assignments where I'd say, huh, I'd like to do that for a few mm -hmm. more years. So uh, as long as they kept offering me assignments that my wife and I thought would be, uh, would be uh, something we'd enjoy doing, uh, we stayed in. And so it was a very rewarding career. Yeah. As you look back, um, what would you say your favorite tours that you and your wife had? Oh, gosh. You know, I guess one thing I'll say about that, sometimes the tours you desire the least uh, could be the most rewarding, mm -hmm. at least from a professional standpoint, not necessarily for the family. Yeah. But uh, so New Orleans would be a great example, right? So I screened for 05 Command. I think Detroit was open in San Francisco, uh, one other place in and, uh, and New Orleans. And my wife got on the computer and started looking at uh, – schools because at the time we had kids in elementary, middle, and, and senior high school. And the public school system there was not stellar. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of had that as our last choice. And the detailer called me up and said, congrats, you got command in New Orleans. And I said, well, you know, you told me the other day, I like screened at the top of the list. He said, yeah, but your XO is real senior. You're going to New Orleans. Dang. And I whined a little bit. And he said, would you like to look at some staff tours? I said, nope, New Orleans, <laughs> no. here we go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, from a professional standpoint, I mean, just by pure luck, having had the opportunity to be uh, in command at New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina was uh, one of the most rewarding thing I've ever been a part of. And I know you'll talk about that later, but just op the opportunity to work with uh, amazing people from all over our service in a historic rescue operation was a very uh, humbling and, uh, and inspiring uh, uh, experience. So how long were you the CEO before Katrina hit? About a year and a month. Okay. Yeah. Is it something that you felt like you were prepared for? Was there nothing that... A absolutely. I felt like my uh, my whole career in the Coast Guard had prepared me for that moment to be in command at New Orleans. So it's just sort of a, a sequence of opportunities to, um, to learn from great mentors, how to uh, lead and how to exercise on-scene initiative, how to delegate... And uh, I was fortunate in my career. I worked for some really great CEOs and ops bosses and XOs. And I had kind of, I, th I thought I was positioned pretty well after a diverse Coast Guard career to be able mm -hmm. to, to be able to be in command at that time. We, we haven't talked to anybody who uh, got to serve through Hurricane Katrina and, and it's great having you here, sir, because obviously leading the charge of the air station there. Can you walk us through what that, uh, you know, that day, the previous 24 hours, what you did after it hit. Um, yeah. So, you know, we, uh, we, we kind of knew that the hurricane was uh, heading for New Orleans for about 48 hours prior. It was going to be a big one. It could possibly still be cat five when it hit. And we'd all seen the hurricane Pam exercise that was done the year before that was forecasting for the city of New Orleans to be underwater. And oh. we, you know, you figure a city's underwater, it ruins everything, right? Mm -hmm. It ruins all your infrastructure and it was going to be a, a horrible disaster. So we were expecting the worst. We got our families out of the area. We prepared our helicopters to fly west out of the storm's reach and return as soon as possible afterwards. Mm -hmm. And as I, as I told my crews for every hurricane we did, because there was at least six named storms uh, before Katrina, just during that short command tour, I'd been there. You tell the crews, hey, you, you may lose all comms with the chain of command. So be prepared to act on your own initiative for 72 hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's kind of what Coasties do. And it's what a lot of other agencies and the Department of Defense, I would say, don't, don't do, because that's not the way they operate. We're mm -hmm. more like a 
policeman or a fireman where you're on your own in the patrol car or the fire and you just mm-hmm. go off on your own and you respond, right? So we, um, we flew west and came back uh, right after the hurricane flew over or passed over New Orleans uh, the morning of the 29th of August, 2005. Mm-hmm. And as soon as we got over the city, we saw that, uh, you know, the city's flooded, it's underwater. And you started seeing people on rooftops crying for, out for help. So we started picking people up. And there was our five helicopters from Air State NOLA. There was a couple of 60s from Mobile were already there. And then we had other aircraft from around the country were already fl- flying into the uh, theater from every air station in the Coast Guard essentially sent either aircraft and or air crew, including like Hawaii and Brankin and Alaska even. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty impressive, um, but it was utter chaos. It was, um, you know, pretty much a discontinuity of government, local government in New Orleans, because half the city was underwater, including government buildings, fire stations, police stations. There was just a loss of any kind of command authority from the city itself. And so really the Coast Guard's ability to have the initiative to just step up and start doing rescues without waiting for disaster declarations without waiting for guidance from the governor of the state and that mm-hmm. sort of thing really was what enabled uh, our success. But uh, flying in an environment of, um, as the days went by and you had literally maybe 125, 150 helicopters over the city at any one time, the threat of a mid-air collision was uh, intense. Yeah. We were all acutely aware of it. And um, just eyes on a swivel, good coordination uh, between air crews, um, setting up some, some uh, routes in and out of the city in different altitudes and different frequencies that, that would just happen sort of organically by air crews mm-hmm. was instrumental in not having any uh, mid-air collisions. But uh, the amount of rescues that took place in a short period of time is really phenomenal. And, um, you know, you think, well, it was over land. What can be hard about that? Because we're used to hearing about, mm-hmm. you know, big rescue in the Coast Guard is up in Alaska, you know, 30 foot seas and 80 mile an hour winds. And, um, what was challenging about New Orleans, even though it was over land uh, day and night, just the intensity of uh, the pace of rescues, the heat for the H-65 Bravos at the time, mm-hmm. very power limited aircraft and just constantly being uh, in a hover already, you know, pulling all yellow segments. And, the, and then you think you're getting a child in the basket and a 300 pound person jumps in the basket and you start settling towards the top of a roof or an H-53 flies right overhead and oh. their downwash uh, puts you into power settling. I mean, that happened over and over again. It's just amazing we didn't lose an aircraft. Wow. Um, and then, of course, flying right next to obstacles, whether those are power lines or trees or buildings or whatever the case may be, and putting rescue swimmers down in the situations they really weren't trained for. Like, you know, the waters in New Orleans, after a week of exposure to that heat and that humidity, oh. you've got sewage, you've got decaying dead animals, decaying matter, people, um, every kind of chemical imaginable is seeping from whatever is underwater, cars, dry cleaning shops, gas stations, mm-hmm. and it's all in there. And the swimmers are getting exposed to that stuff through the rotor spray and as well as the boat crews who did amazing things. So we had reports constantly coming in of uh, shots being fired at aircraft, shots being fired at rescuers on surface assets. I remember hearing that. Yeah. And that intensity just uh, created this environment where you were just under incredible stress the whole time. And people were, you know, four or five days straight without a break to get any kind of crew rest. And I was going to ask, did you sleep? Uh, very little. I mean, at Air Station that? New Orleans, um, we had uh, the, the hangar was completely off limits because uh, the roof had been torn back and the water came in. Everything was within two days. You had black mold everywhere. Wow. So all the birthing was destroyed. Um, so we were all kind of sta- stashed in the uh, either in the open bay of the hangar or in the admin building, sleeping you know head to toe on cots and on the on the floor, and uh, right next to the flight line. So really, to get any kind of significant sleep, I mean that just wasn't going to happen. You're getting right. a few hours of sleep, and I talk about this as an example. One of my officers, Craig O'Brien, he was a lieutenant at the time, admin officer, and 
Uh, I mean, he, he would work in the op center during the day and then you sleep for a few hours on a cot and then he'd go do the night shift every night for four or five nights in a row, rescued like 140 people. And, um, you know, one night he's hovering over, uh, uh, uptown New Orleans and, uh, looked down in this, at his, in his floodlight at the street sign and realized he's like a block from his own house and no it's under way. eight feet of water. So he knows his own house is flooded right over there. Just press on, right? Just keep doing your job. Compartmentalize yeah, continue. compartmentalize and continue. A lot of folks did. A lot of the boat crews, their, their homes were flooded and they just kept, they kept working. They might've had three weeks of rescue ops before they finally got some time off to check on their own flooded uh, home. So really great de dedication to duty. Yeah, that's incredible. What a, uh, I mean, it's such a historic event for our service, it really put us on the map uh, as far as like our versatility and our ability to react to something like that. And to be in the, th in the thick of it must have been exciting and exhausting. Yeah, very exhausting. At the same time. Uh, yeah, very draining, emotionally draining, inspiring too, you know, because I'm really walking through the hangar deck all hours of the night and day and uh, welcoming the crews that were there from other air stations mm -hmm. and never heard a complaint. I mean, honest to God, never heard a complaint. And people were busting their asses working like dogs. And, um, but they knew they were part of something historic. They knew they were making a difference. They knew they were saving lives. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's when you find your, your highest morale is when the things are most difficult. If it's in service to a great endeavor, something that really improves people's lives. I mean, that's why I always joined pretty much, right? Saving mm -hmm. lives. Were you, are you a 65 pilot by trade, sir? No, I started off flying H-52s. I flew okay. H-52s for three and a half years in Houston. We transitioned to the 65 Alpha. Yep. Then I went off to HT-18. I was a flight instructor for three years. And uh, then 60s, grad school, staff tour, uh, 65 XO at Traverse City, 65 CO in New Orleans, another staff tour, or no, command of Sector Lake Michigan, which is a non-flying command. And then, mm -hmm. and then 60s uh, back in Astoria again. So I kind of went back and forth between airframes, which I'm really glad I had the opportunity to do yeah. that. Good experience where they got to compare the airframes and I don't have a favorite if that's your next question. They're all great. <laughs> I mean, the Probably. 65 is a great aircraft. The 60 is a great aircraft. I will say the 65 requires a little more, as at least back then when it was the Bravo, um, you know, maybe required some more finesse because mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was great transitioning to the 60 and plenty of power. But let's face it, when you got that much power, you don't have to finesse it too much, do right. you? You can kind of be a plumber and still fly the 60 pretty well, but the 65 took a lot of yeah, a lot of airmanship. You got an emergency escape handle on your left side with that collective, you know. That's get, right. Get me out of the situation, <laughs> just pull the power. Yeah. Um, yeah, that must have been just, I'm just trying to imagine myself there, just a really proud moment to be part of the Coast Guard. Like, yes, it was a, a tragic event, but to be able to see an organization come together in, in total chaos and and be able to make an impact to people's lives must have been a highlight of your career. Oh I yeah, it was it was extraordinarily moving to see how how dedicated people were, how hard they were working, how many lives they were saving, how they weren't complaining, they were just innovating and getting things done. Because you know you had junior, I saw junior people getting more responsibility and less oversight than they had ever had in their lives. And mm -hmm. you know what? They rose to the occasion. They did the job. They did great stuff. Mm -hmm. Because we had our little air station, you know, five helicopters, hundred five people, something like that, and. Uh, all of a sudden we had 30, 35 helicopters and uh, hundreds of people coming in and they, they had to figure out a way to get those aircraft uh, turned around and fueled. And then of course over in ATC Mobile, which would just like exploded. Huge, uh, yeah. Huge effort under uh, Captain Dave Callahan and all his crew. They did amazing things as well. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, funny you a mentioned that. Yeah, like DOD services, I'm still friends with, you know, some DOD stuff. And it's, it's just amazing. We talk about our different aviation experiences, you know, where we take off, like, do you know your mission? Not really, no. Do you know where you're gonna land? No, you know where you're getting fuel? No. Did you have to do weight and balance? Like, sort of, did it as best as I could, you know? Um, and they're like, that That blows our mind because everything yeah. is just planned. We know from like the second I show up to that aircraft, 
we've had a, you know, a brief 24 hours out, 12 hours out, 30 minutes out. And yeah, just totally, totally different. And the Coast Guard kind of work well on our own. Like that's when we shine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it never was more visible than a month after Hurricane Katrina when Hurricane Rita hit. So Mm -hmm. Rita, people kind of forget about Rita, but that was a Cat 4 hurricane that did a tremendous billions of dollars worth of damage. And, and when Rita came in, the DOD was there in force by now, right? Because all the all the Katrina rescues were over, so the DOD is there in oh, full force. They go, okay, yeah. we're going to avoid the, what they call the shit show that happened in Katrina, and we're going to fix it, right? The DOD, they're going to establish all these grids, and they're going to use the Afghan bombing grid uh, uh, process to grid out the Gulf Coast. But when it came right down to it, uh, despite all their planning and grids, when the hurricane uh, shifted course to the right a little bit, they weren't able to respond. So it was Coast Guard helicopters out there rescuing people in 70 knot winds the morning that Hurricane Rita came ashore before the DOD could really adapt their plan. The Coast Guard had already rescued everybody and taken them to uh, mm-hmm. the safe uh, haven. Yeah. The DOD is really uh, great and better than us at long-term expeditionary type stuff. Mm-hmm. But in terms of immediate response, firehouse mentality, the Coast Guard has that skill that they don't have. Yeah switching gears a little bit. There's a rumor out there that you got back-to-back DFCs or air medals, back-to-back flights. Can you confirm or deny that? <laughs> uh, not, not, not really, but um, <laughs> yeah, I was, by, as you know, that if you get a great SAR case, it's, you happen to be on duty, right? Yeah. And if you had not been on duty that day, the other guy would have gotten the case. And it's just luck of the draw. And it, as it happened, when I was at Elizabeth City flying 60s, uh, I, I took up deer hunting and it, in North Carolina, you couldn't hunt on Sunday. So I sniveled for Sunday duties for like all month in mm-hmm. December. And that way I could hunt on Friday and Saturday. So it just happened that two Sundays in a row, I had duty on big cases. And the first one was a sailing vessel, Duchess, 180 miles offshore. And, uh, you know, I don't know, 25 foot seas and 50 knot winds. And uh, they were taking on water. They wanted off. We flew offshore. We got there. And uh, the, the, the sea was literally white with foam. Whoa. So we're looking for a white sailboat with white sails and we couldn't, we couldn't find it. Yeah. And once it started getting dark and then all of a sudden we saw a mass light. So we we're able to get over to it, making a turn through base to make our approach to a hover by this sailboat and <laughs> engine fire light comes on. So that had a little pucker factor going on there. 180 miles offshore. Yeah, 180 miles light. offshore, oh, fire light came on. So we, you know, slow down, open the door, have the flight mech check and no, no visible sign of fire. And at the time my co-pilot, um, what Mark Collier was a prior Navy guy, and he said, uh, oh, you know, sometimes the firelight goes off if you get the light hit through the louvers on the cowling just right. I'm like, I never heard that story before. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure man. how comfortable I am. <laughs> but uh, there was no other signs that there was a fire, so we continued on, making it made our approach to the hover, and uh, these guys jumped off the boat into the water. I figured, I guess they want to get rescued, so we rescued them all, and Scott Adlon was the rescue swimmer did just an amazing job rescuing these three guys. Um, so that was one Sunday. And then Sunday, a week later, had another case that was even a little gnarlier than that one was. I actually wrote a story about it. You want me to read the story? Yeah. yeah. yeah the story's, uh, story's called Brown Leather Shoe. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote it for civilians, so uh, explains a few things that Hilo guys like. I know that. Flying a helicopter far offshore at night in a gale is not for everyone. Non-maritime pilots generally are horrified at the thought of having to no place to land in an emergency and, and no visible horizon to orient yourself in the blackness. On land, you hold a steady hover at night by reference to a fixed object, building, or, or the ground. Offshore, anything you focus on is moving. If you keep a bit of foam or flotsam in your searchlight in the same relative position, you aren't steady at all because it's moving backwards up and down and you're moving with it and fighting vertigo. 
On the bright side, over the ocean, you're not worried about running into anything. No power lines out there, no trees or, or cumulus granted us. Thus, it was with some surprise, uh, Kenny and Sam and Ryan, while struggling to hover an H-60 Jayhawk in a gale 400 miles off of Cape Henry, I picked up movement in my peripheral vision, and I glanced over to see a brown leather shoe illuminated in my floodlight and rising in the helicopter windscreen. For a split second, I froze, wondering, what the hell's a shoe doing there? My co-pilot, Randy, recognized that the shoe was not levitating of its own accord, but it was riding on top of a wave, and we'd probably be better off if we were looking down on that shoe instead of looking up at it. So Randy called up, 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 and I followed along with him on the collective as he uh, pulled up and we climbed. So survival instinct overrode our state of wonder at the presence of footwear far out in the ocean. Seconds later, the shoe and all the massive wave which carried it passed harmlessly below. Earlier that Sunday, I was relaxing in the crew lounge at Air State East City when our C-130 crew launched to assist the 43-foot catch Malachite in distress 400 miles off Cape Henry. The catch's three sailors were en route from New York to Bermuda and were struggling to stay afloat in the face of a nor'easter that pummeled them for days. Several of the mast stays had snapped, they had an electrical fire, they were taken on water, and they wanted off. So the 130 found the Malachite, dropped down, made a pass directly overhead, at the airplane's tail, the crewman stood on the open door ramp, drop ramp, bounced roughly in the turbulence. They were tethered to cargo rings to keep them from being knocked out. And on the pilot countdown, they pushed the life rafts out. And with impeccable timing and piloting, at least one of the life rafts was perfectly placed, its tethering line draped over the sailboat's hull. The sailors grabbed the line, began hauling the life raft to the boat. But the effect of the seas pulling at the raft and pounding the boat put so much tension on the line, it was impossible for them to hang on to it. It burned their hands and they had to let go. The C-130 made several more successful attempts, but the sailors couldn't get the rafts aboard. So back in East City, uh, Randy Watson and I were busy with charts and nav computers, determining whether we could make the rescue. 400 miles was about 100 miles past our normal max range, but the presence of Bermuda, about 275 miles southeast of the sailboat position, put the trip in the realm of the possible, if everything just went right. Uh, we knew this case fell into the category of the big one, the mission that would push you to your limits, and we were kind of pumped up at the possibility of being able to do it. So Atlantic Area RCC on Governor's Island uh, called to ask whether it would be possible for a helicopter to attempt the rescue. And we told them that not only was it possible, but we had already made preparations and we were able to get airborne in 30 minutes. I told maintenance to install three external fuel tanks. That gave us about six hours of fuel. Our CO, Captain Norm Scaria, came in from home to look over our plans. I told him we'd use uh, 300 miles offshore as our go-no-go -no -go point. So it was a long, rough trip out. We watched the fuel burn closely. Uh, three hours later, we calculated we could make Malachite, have 30 minutes on scene, and just make it to Bermuda. It got dark. Land area RCC called on the HF. The senior controller came on and said, hey, you guys don't have to do this, no pressure. I recognized the voice, it was Captain Grant Lieber who had been my primary H-52 instructor at ATC way back in 1985. Wow. Senior controllers don't usually come on the EHF to tell you you don't have to do a mission. So I knew somebody was paying attention to this. So I said, Roger, turned to look at the crew and no one had to say a thing. We all knew what we were all thinking. What do you mean not do it? Of course we're gonna do it. Nearly on the scene, a 130 from Clearwater guided us to the sailboat. I could see the lights uh, beginning to line up the pattern for a match or a 
self-directed instrument approach to the water. I could see the sailboat's lights clearly. I foolishly decided to save a few minutes by making just a visual approach to Malachite. And this was before the days when we had NVGs on during approaches to the water. Oh, God. So near the vessel, it became apparent I was coming in too hot. I would not be able to stop in time. So I climbed up, waved off, angry at myself for wasting time trying to save time. Lesson learned. Mm -hmm. And then I flew a full instrument approach pattern back to the boat. The 130 dropped some flares to help light up the seas around us, uh, but they were quickly swept away. I trained the searchlight onto the boat and the waves. Waves were running 30 feet or more, and I was all over the sky trying to maintain a steady hover with no horizon and the seas rising and falling past the upbelly of the aircraft. So there's no way I was going to ho hoist these guys off the sailboat. As we came into a hover directly overhead with the boat's mast swinging erratically left and right, up and down, the cable would obviously get wrapped around the rigging and become unusable. So the only way to rescue them was to have them jump off the boat into the seas. And if I may quote from George Costanza, the sea was angry that day, my friends, <laughs> like an old man sending his soup back to the kitchen. As the knot in the pit of my stomach grew, I swallowed hard and asked my rescue swimmer, Petty Officer Third Class Dave Yoder, Dave, what do you think? And a flight mech, Petty Officer Second Class Dave Barber said, sir, he's already taking his helmet off. He's ready to go. Randy Watson told the sailboat crew, Captain, you got a merchant ship ready to assist you in about 12 hours. You can wait until then, or you can jump off your vessel now, and we'll send a swimmer down to pick you up. We have 30 minutes on scene, so make a decision. And the next thing I knew, I see three reflective vests going off the back of the boat into the ocean. And thought, you know, they must want off that boat pretty bad. That was mm -hmm. kind of a sobering realization. Those guys' lives are in our hands now. A minute later, I was looking down into the searchlight at Petty Officer Dave Yoder swimming like a madman, absolutely flat out, um, first closing the distance to the victims, and now he's being swept back by the seas. I saw him stop and look, and he has no idea where the victims are anymore. So I used the, my thumb to move the searchlight to point the right direction to swim, and he started swimming again. And I just watched him swim in the searchlight and thought to myself, man, that guy's got some big fins. <laughs> <laughs> Yoder reached the first victim, and as I was struggling to follow the commands from my hoist operator and to hold position long enough for the swimmer to get the cable and hook to the basket, I watched in amazement as several times 30-foot seas just crashed down on Dave Yoder. Just buried him and buried the basket, and he had to start all over again. He finally got the first guy in the basket, and after we have him safely in the cabin, we picked Dave up to reposition him for the next rescue. Copot tells me 15 minutes have passed, and we know we only have 30 minutes on scene to get all three victims and the swimmer back. So I am feeling the pressure now. I hear the tension in the flight mech's voice that I can't hold position better. And I'm starting to second guess my decision to let these guys jump off the boat in the first place. I know we have to get a better rhythm to get these hoists done before bingo fuel. So we put Dave Yoder down and he repeats the whole evolution. Swimming against these mountainous swells in the pitch black, except for my searchlight pointing the way, and this time it goes a little faster. We get a little better rhythm. Yoder gets the swimmer in the basket and we pull him up. We pick Yoder up and reposition him and he disconnects to retrieve the third and final victim. And it's definitely not the most challenging flying any Coastie has ever done by any means, but it was the hardest flying I had ever done. And it was definitely pushing me to my personal limits. Copilot was constantly recalculating and calling out fuel state 
and coming on the collective occasionally, calling up, up, up. I'm fighting vertigo, drenched with sweat, acutely aware that my decision to put the swimmer into water 400 miles offshore with no backup helo meant that if anything happened, he'd be stranded with no hope of rescue for hours. And then as the co-pilot called one minute to bingo, the flight mech expertly lowered the hoist hook to the swimmer, who's now physically and mentally exhausted and puking into the ocean. And if that wasn't enough drama, as the rescue swimmer was approaching 10 feet below the cabin door, the hoist cable started coming apart in the flight mix hand. Just coming apart. So Dave Barber, thinking quickly, just ran the, what was now a hopelessly bird-nested cable up into the hoist assembly where it jammed. The swimmer was stuck outside the cabin, 75 feet above the ocean, but by the grace of God, just within reach of Dave Barber, who was able to reach out, bear hug him into the cabin. And meanwhile, I was concentrating on flying the helicopter, worried about our fuel state, don't yet know that we almost just had to shear our swimmer and leave him alone in the dark 400 miles offshore with no helicopter anywhere nearby. All I know is I just witnessed the most incredible display of heroism I've ever seen by Dave Yoder, who was on his first actual live rescue mission. No way. Yes, indeed. No way. Yes, indeed. (laughs) His courage was just remarkable, and it was a privilege to watch him. When we finally recovered him, he collapsed exhausted on the cabin deck. And then during the 275-mile flight to the nearest point of land, Bermuda, we had plenty of time to think about what would have happened if that hoist had jammed earlier with Dave and the three sailors still in the ocean. Later on, over pints of bass ale in a Bermuda pub, one of the men we rescued lamented losing his brand new Rockport boat shoes when he jumped overboard. (laughs) I took another swig of beer and said, that's a shame. Those were good-looking shoes. <laughs> that's my story about that star case. Wow. Oh, my goodness. There's so much to unpack on that. Yeah, like all about the hair standing up in my arms right now. Yeah. 400 miles offshore? Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah, that was only going to happen if there was a big Navy ship out there to get gas from yeah. or... A little point of land, which happened to be uh, Bermuda. That's incredible. So it uh, it worked out. I think we had maybe forty five minutes of gas in the tanks when we landed in Bermuda. Yeah, it's like one of those times. Sometimes I think about um, you know the main gearbox malfunction EP in the in the sixty five, and you're flying at minimum safe altitude at appropriate airspeed in case you get some other indication that the gearbox is taking a shit. But if you're 400 miles offshore and the only way to get back is another 250 miles to Bermuda, like, yeah. that is a long transit for yeah. anything to go wrong, like the firelight. Oh, know. yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was um, stressful. But, you know, when it's over, as you can imagine, the crew was pretty pumped. And we were pumped for several days. And, of course, Unbelievable. we couldn't get back to the States into headwind. So we had to, we were, every day we went to the airport and waited a few hours to see if uh, the Coast Guard could arrange a lily pad for us to land on. And when they said they couldn't, then we just went to a local pub and had a drink. <laughs> and after about five days, I think they, they had a, they had a Navy ship that was halfway between Bermuda and the States. So we went and landed on that and uh, got some gas and continued home. That's uh, I mean, that makes me think of it a 65 type case where you, you literally, you calculate down to the minute what you have when you get on scene, You're like, Hey guys, we only have this amount of time. Yeah. Um, that last hoist 
Did it feel like it wasn't going fast enough? Did it feel like it took forever or? Well, that first one was the one that felt like it was taking forever because right. it was just, it was just really, really hard. And the, the, I could hear the frustration in the flight mix voice because it would be sort of like, you know, forward 20, forward 10, back, back 10, back 40, back 50. Cause what would happen this big wave well, would go would by and just sweep the basket and the mm -hmm. victim behind us. And, uh, very, very uh, difficult to maintain to maintain position. So fortunately, we managed to eventually get into a little bit of a rhythm and figure out what uh, I was doing yeah. and be able to get those three guys rescued in about 30 minutes and get the swimmer back. But yeah, the first the first one took a long time to get a rhythm. Yeah, there's, like I said, there's so much to unpack, but the thing that resonated the most with me in that story is that first one not going well and then thinking like, I, I just made a huge mistake. All this is a huge mistake. Oh, by the way, I'm still trying to do the hardest waste yeah. of my life. Yeah. While all that yeah. stuff from probably from the second you took off of like, yeah, I knew the fuel wasn't right. I knew this wasn't right. And yeah, I should have made these people jump in the water because I told them I was going to rescue them. And yeah. So that's where, you know, compartmentalization comes in. You just, yeah. you, can, you got to keep all those thoughts going at simultaneously, but not let them, uh, stop you mm -hmm. or incapacitate yeah. you. Right? Yeah. Like, hey, we, we've already passed that one-way decision gate. Oh, yeah. So worrying about that now is going to do me zero good. Exactly. Like the only thing I can do right now is- Just calm down and get the hoist done. Get the hoist done. Get the hoist done. Get the hoist done. Yeah. How much uh, gas did you land with? Do you remember when you got to Bermuda? I think it's like 45 minutes worth. Okay. You know? So you had some, maybe had some wiggle room if you really needed to, but. Yeah, a little bit, but not, because you know, you don't know if the winds are going to shift on the way to Bermuda or not. Oh, so oh, yeah. you don't want to push that. Absolutely. I don't want to push that very much, but uh, yeah, amazing crew. Dave Barber, Dave Yoder, uh, uh, the late Randy Watson as co-pilot, who's a former Army uh, 60 pilot. Just a great, a great, amazing crew. Couldn't have, if any of those guys had not been actually on the top of their A game, never would have happened. Had you ever gotten back together with them or have seen them, you know, after that case where you're, hey, let's go have a beer and talk about our adventure together? Well, we I mean, we were stationed together for a few more years after that. Okay. So, and he said he before the first person transferred out. So, yeah, we had plenty of chance to talk about it, do some other flying together as well. Pretty wild that that was the swimmer's first um, live rescue. Not the only time that's happened, you know, mm -hmm. but lots, lots of cases like that. The, the, the case I briefly mentioned that happened the Sunday before on the sailing vessel Duchess with uh, rescue swimmer Scott Edline, that was his first big uh, real case as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the um, the vibe of the other pilots in the wardroom after you came back from two straight weeks <laughs> of incredible SAR cases? Were they like, oh, damn it, Jones? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're not you're not allowed to fly anymore. Yeah, don't get in the helicopter. <laughs> oh man, Just luck of the draw. I said, well, fellas, you should have snivelled for Sunday yeah. Sunday duty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, well, jumping into, I mean, the, those are incredible SAR cases and, and you got a chance to fly after uh, the Coast Guard as well, right, sir? Yeah, so I um, I retired as Air Station's uh, Astoria Sector of Columbia River in summer of 2014 and I had not planned to go back to work for about a year. It was going to take a year off, but mm -hmm. uh, the Columbia River bar pilots whose hangar is just 100 yards away offered me a job and I thought, well... That'd be a fun job. Just go fly for a few years yeah. and uh, week on, week off schedule, no collateral duties. I'll go do that. And uh, so I went and flew with them. They have an AW109SP, really nice aircraft, uh, really good autopilot system, good instrument aircraft. Um, 
I will say that in the two and a half years with the bar pilots, I flew in more horrible weather than in 30 years in the Coast Guard. <laughs> because, uh, you know, on a nice day like today, it is just a great job flying out there. It's beautiful, mm -hmm. easy hoist, right, on gently mm -hmm. rolling ships. But uh, as you well know, in the Pacific Northwest, a lot of months out of the year, the weather is uh, is dog do. It's horrendous. And the ships are still coming in, you know, unless, unless it's over like uh, maybe 22, 25 foot seas, they don't close the bar. The ship's commerce must uh, go on, right? So the mm -hmm. ships are coming in and out and we go offshore and, and, and hoist the pilots to the incoming ships and hoist the pilots off the outbound ships. And so you might have, uh, uh, you know, a night where, you know, it's night shift 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. and it could be blowing 50 knots, 18 foot seas, and you might have six or seven ships. So, uh, in the Coast Guard, if you go out at night to do a hoist in 18-foot seas and 50, 60-knot winds, that's a pretty good SAR case. And more than likely, no other idiot is out there that mm -hmm. night, right? So you do the one SAR case, you come home, you go to sleep. Mm -hmm. But for us, it's like, yep, there's six more coming. You got one at 10 p.m., one at 11, one at 1.30, one at 2.30, one at 3 a.m., one at 5 a.m. So yeah, lots of, lots of long nights flying in some pretty gnarly stuff. Wow. Uh, pretty, pretty challenging flying. Is it, um, was it year round too, or is there at a point where the seas lay down enough for the boats to get the pilot out? Um, no, generally the, the reason that bar pilots use the helicopter is for speed and efficiency. It's just a lot faster. Oh, if, they, okay. if they go off in the boat, which they do use the boat still, if, if the weather conditions don't permit the helicopter to fly, usually for visibility, if, if visibility is below men's or if the helicopter is in a maintenance status, they still use the boat, but it takes them a lot longer to get out there and get back. So for efficiency's sake, they have the helicopter and that way they don't have to have as many of the any pilots mm. working for them. Mm -hmm. um, so that's that's the reason they do it, just to get out there quicker. That's probably how they're able to afford it, I guess, is that you don't have to pay as many pilots because they're moving quicker. Yeah, they have about 16 or 17 bar pilots in their association. And if they had boat only and no helicopter, they probably have like 24, 25 pilots gotcha. and pretty high pay that yeah. they get and it'd be a lot more expensive. Just, yeah. it's just more efficient. What were and plus weather? it's really yeah. dangerous flying the, uh, I mean, climbing the Jacobs ladder in oh. those kind of sea conditions, which they used to do before the helicopter, yeah. really dangerous. And occasionally they lose a pilot slipping off a ladder. So the helicopter as, even though it is also high risk, I think it's a more manageable risk for the pilots mm -hmm. than climbing that ladder on a ship that's uh, rolling and pitching uh, 20, 20 degrees or That's more. That's interesting. Uh, yeah. What were your weathermen's, you remember? Yeah, I believe we were, so nighttime was 1,003 and day, we're 301 daytime. Maybe it was 703 at night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was 703 at night. Okay. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah. Single pilot. Single yes. IFR rated. Not at night. At day, at nighttime was always dual pilot, okay. but other than that, you're single pilot. So if it was, uh, you know, 501, you're going out, single pilot in the daytime. And yeah. of course it's never 501 the whole way, right? So around here, especially, it could be clear at the airport and a fog bank offshore, mm -hmm. um, fog bank at the airport. And if you can get out, then it's clear offshore or maybe different fog banks. So it's uh, it, was, it was pretty challenging dealing with the variable weather conditions in the Pacific Northwest. Personally, you know, it made me appreciate the fact that in the Coast Guard, even in a single pilot aircraft like the 65, you almost always have two pilots. Right. I mean, that extra backup really is a great safety margin. So I, I, I appreciated the fact that I always had flown with two pilots for the most part in the Coast Guard. Did you ever have any um, uh, flights with the bar pilot uh, that you took off and you're like, nope, turn around? Coming right back to land. Uh, yeah, and I've I've had approach. I've had flights where we took off in the daytime, you know, single pilot, and make an approach to a ship. And at three hundred feet, if you don't, if you're not seeing the ship at three hundred feet, 
there's always a temptation. And sometimes you would be asked, hey, can't we just go a little lower? And answer, no, mm-hmm. we can't go a little lower. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason that those men's were there and the top of the ship might be 140 feet up in the air and we really don't want to run into it. Yeah, absolutely. There's a few times I was uh, making an approach where at 300 feet, you would see the bridge of the ship sticking out of the fog bank, but you couldn't see the rest of the ship. It's like, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're going to go back and you can get on the boat. Wow. No, you never got... Um stranded from getting back into the, into the airport, did you? Or would you just get up and shoot the ILS and down to Mins? Uh, one time I remember landing at the parking lot out at Fort Stevens, waiting okay. for the airport just a few miles away to clear up. But right. we had a really good um, low visibility route back. And, and again, a really good instrument system on that aircraft where we could program in the waypoints and just pick our way back and feel very comfortable. But if need be, of course, we could climb up and get an instrument approach. Is that low vis route similar to um, uh, the air stations? Or you guys fly, fly a different low vis route? Because I know theirs kind of goes on the north side of the shipping channel and then cuts over. I think they were pretty similar, but I mean, if if um, if the if the visibility was so low that we're using the low vis route, you'll be under be you'll be under special V, so you're not really worried about hitting anybody else because you. okay. you're going to be under positive control from ATC. Yep. Okay. Did you find it uh, rewarding? You know. Yeah. 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 It was. Uh, it was. It was very rewarding. Um, yeah. You flying out over the ocean, making a hoist approach to a ship. And the nice thing was it's, it's, you're only going about eight miles offshore. The average flight was about 20 to 22 minutes. Take off 11 minutes out there, do the hoist 11 minutes back and you're back on deck mm-hmm. typically. Yeah, yeah. I know sometimes like the Coast Guard, um, you know, you go out and you can search for six hours and you're like, did we accomplish the mission? I, I don't know. Whereas at least here you can say, okay, we have a mission tonight and I know when they're going to happen. And you either say, yes, we completed all that and you sleep good at night saying, we did it, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Very, very short to the point. There's only one mission. Go out there and either pick the bar pallet up or put the bar pallet down. And it's usually over in 20 to 30 minutes. How was transitioning from the responsibility of an entire sector uh, <laughs> and all those helicopters to just yourself in the helicopter again? It was kind of a pleasure. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a pleasure to not have any collateral duties anymore and just uh, just be a pilot, just flying an aircraft. Yeah, yeah that, it, was, it was a pleasure. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Kenny, we, we might as well jump into the big story yeah. here. You want to you want to go for it? Yeah, sir. We got to hear it. And we heard you had a we heard you had a close call one night. Yeah, I had uh, definitely the the worst day of my life, uh, and certainly the worst day in aviation happened to me when I was flying for the bar pilots one day, and uh, I, I wrote it down as a story, so it's a true story, and I'll just uh, read the story. So, uh, and I call it ten seconds. Okay. Time slows in the moment you realize you're about to crash. Observations race past. We're going in. That water's cold. Those waves are big. And the guys in back aren't wearing dry suits. After we splash, the rotor blades are going to thrash and splinter until the weight of the engines and transmission overhead rolls us over. And we're going to plunge inverted toward the ocean floor. If I can jettison my door, keep oriented, and hold my breath in the sinking wreckage long enough to pull myself clear, my cold fingers can find the toggles to inflate my life vest, I'll rise to the surface. If I'm trapped, I'll have to use my oxygen bottle, ears popping while I try to free myself. This is going to be news. Coast Guard rescue crews are searching for one of their own, a retired pilot who survived 30 years without a scratch until this. It is amazing how much can go through your mind in just a second. Shit. Often the last word airline black boxes record, that word says volumes. I'm doing everything I can and it is not enough. Mike, the hoist operator, was sitting behind me watching the ocean come closer. 
the massive hull of the car carrier 30 yards away. He knew it was serious, but he told me later he assumed I would pull it out until he heard me say that one word. Damn it, he thought. This is not how I want to go out. I have stuff I want to do. Minutes earlier, we watched 17-foot November seas crash into the south jetty, sending white spray high into a dreary sky as we sped by 500 feet overhead. A southwest wind blew 30 knots, gusting to 40, etching wind streaks on the ocean's surface and jerking us around. Rain squalls poured here and there from the rippling gray overcast. I used radar to track to the 650-foot Grand Neptune to deliver the pilot who would bring her across the bar. She appeared from the mist, pitching and rolling slowly but impressively. The bar pilot and I discussed where to winch him and his apprentice. The ship rode best down swell, but that left me an uncomfortable 90-degree crosswind. I could turn the ship into the wind, perpendicular to the swells, and that would make the helicopter easier to handle, but the ship would roll severely. Compromising, I left her riding down swell, and I approached into the wind, perpendicular to the ship. This carried the risk of turbulence as the stiff winds hit the ship's hull, rise 110 feet to the top deck, and then they roll and spin in invisible vortices towards the lee side, the side from which I would approach. Two days earlier, I hoisted the same pilot to an almost identical car carrier in the same conditions. It was a workout. It was turbulent, but it was manageable, and the pilot landed safely on his feet. So I thought today would be no different. But there is nothing predictable when it involves all the variables of seas, winds, squalls, and ship interacting dynamically. In hindsight, I should have avoided the lee side of that massive steel wall. But I didn't. And so now I was hovering close aboard Grand Neptune, facing her top deck, and sliding left at 14 knots, matching her eastward course. Behind me, the cabin door opened, giving the crew a view of the restless ship. The hoist operator released enough cable for the pilot to hook into his harness D-ring, disconnect his seatbelt, and step out of the helicopter, one hand on the cabin door frame, ready to be winched down. The helicopter suddenly descended. I instinctively increased power by raising the collective in my left hand. The master caution light flashed over torque and sounded over torque in my headset and the torque gauge registered maximum. We all heard the sickening sound of the turboshaft engines winding down as the helicopter computer programmed to prevent transmission destruction through excess engine torque cut fuel flow. The ship rose in the windshield as we, enveloped in an invisible downdraft, descended even faster. My escape route forward was blocked. With my right hand, I threw the cyclic stick left and pushed the nose forward to accelerate. The automated warning system's insistent female voice announced, rotor low. We dropped like a deflated dirigible through 50 feet. I said, get him in. But Mike had already reeled the bar pilot in. He was scrambling to his seat. I focused on my instruments, the flight controls, the approaching sea, and the huge ship looming to my right. The intercom chorus continued, over torque, low rotor, over torque, low rotor. The hull of the car carrier filled my door window. I alternately lowered the collective to keep rotor speed from falling fatally and raised it to avoid hitting the water, while continuously pushing the cyclic forward to try and recover airspeed reflexively using a technique I had practiced many times in Coast Guard flight simulators, known as milking it out. Perhaps five feet above the sea, the helicopter suddenly shook violently. It was as though a giant were shaking us by the tail, 
The cyclic control stick jerked erratically in my hand. The rotor speed was so slow I could see the blades going by, coned upward under the weight of holding the helicopter airborne at low RPM. At that instant, I knew we were going in. There was nothing more I could do. And that's when I unconsciously, but matter-of-factly, blurted, shit. Unconsciously, my arms and feet kept flying, still trying to milk it out from pure muscle memory. And suddenly, the rotors bit some clean air. They sped up. The shaking stopped. We skimmed the waves for another few seconds, but we didn't hit them. I gingerly pulled power, pushed the nose forward, and we began to climb and accelerate. Passing through 100 feet, I thought to myself, all those years in the simulator at ATC saved our lives. And Mike said to me, as if there were any doubt, we're done, let's go home. (laughs) No kidding, Mike. (laughs) The bar pilot added with notable calm in his voice, when you've collected yourself, tell the ship to turn around and have the pilot boat get ready. I did so, and then I said, I'm just going to concentrate on the flight home. Let's debrief on deck. And except for the landing checklist, the eight-minute flight home was silent. The whole incident, the engine instrument data recorder revealed, had lasted about 10 seconds. It's amazing how many things go through your head when you know you're about to crash and when you realize that you're not. Yeah, so that's my very bad day flying story. NR got down to 77%. We pulled the engine data recorder later, 77%. So if you ever wondered how low can you go, you can recover from 77% NR, at least in an AW109, although I don't recommend it. No. Shit. So that was kind of astonishing that that NR got that low and we were able to... I think what happened is I was just passing around the bow of the ship and maybe a little bit of wind got around the bow of the ship and we just got a little bit of clean air that I could bite into. But I mean, it was... (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. What do you want me to? 355, 77%. That's 273 uh, turns in a 65. And our minim, minimum emergency uh, transient torque is 295. Whoa. So, yeah, in hindsight, I, I uh, what would I have done differently? Well, you know, I, I would have, if I was going to set myself up from the same approach angle, I would have hoisted a lot higher been more mindful of, you know, essentially orographic turbulence coming over that ship, right? Or possibly just turn the ship into the wind, except the fact that it's going to roll like a mother. Uh, and, you know, when when a ship is turning, they, the roll tends to settle out until it mm-hmm. stops the turn and then it starts rolling again. I could have had it turn into the wind and just uh, hoist as it was turning into the wind and get the hoist done real quick. So your nose was into the wind and that put uh, the ship beam to... The seas coming out of the southwest? So the ship, I was into the wind directly perpendicular to the ship, which was heading directly downswell. Oh, okay. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, and then, so it was it was configured so that the ship's motion would be less. Right. But the, And I could still be in the wind, but unfortunately on the, on the lee side of that big block that was acting as a yeah. turbulence creator. Yeah. I'm just trying to think. Yeah. So were you sliding um, left? Yeah. I was you, sliding left. Sliding yeah. left? Okay. Yeah. By putting yourself, you know, at least it puts you in a little more control of like looking at that motion of the deck and saying, okay, wait, let's wait. Okay, now, or now nah, we're not, we can't yeah. do that as opposed to, but oh man, I can't, I just can't imagine. Ah, it was, um, uh, what weight is the, um, the rotor turn in the, in the bar pilot helicopter? Is it the same as the 65? Like, is your out down and left yeah. normally yeah. in that one? So yeah. like, 
as you started to droop, your nose was going left anyways, which was kind of helping Honestly, you. Honestly, I think what I was thinking or? more subconsciously was just which was the, my closest out away from the ship. So I think okay. I was about 200 feet back from the bow. Yep. And it was like 200 feet to clear the ship to the left and like 400 feet to the right. And so I think that's kind of what I was uh, just subconsciously. I just dove for the what I thought would be clear space. Yeah. And you still had tail rotor authority, even though the rotor got that low or were you starting yeah, to, I didn't spin at all. Okay. Yeah. There was no spinning. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned ATC simulators and I think we've all been in that position where you're there for your P course and you're like, all right, we'll do some, you know, fly outs and you're yeah, like, yeah, this is dumb. Like I'm not getting anything out of this. Like the fidelity is not great under 75 feet. Um, no, I remember lots of flyouts in the sim at mobile and, um, and I remember times when the instructor, like if, if, if you'd get uh, NR low enough where your generators would all trip off the line, the instructor said, don't worry about that. Just keep flying. The aircraft's still flying. Mm -hmm. And that kind of was drilled into my head that, hey, if the aircraft's still flying, keep flying. Yeah. Just keep flying the aircraft and, um, and just milk it out. And, you know, so what if the NR gets low enough that your stuff all trips off the line? Just keep going. And I, 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 that was just ingrained in me in muscle memory. And I, I know that's what saved our lives that day is because I was, I was just basically just going through the a, uh, <laughs> the simulator, except it was real. Right. That's how, my, that's how my body was reacting. So well, again, I, I literally thought that coming through about a hundred feet, I thought to myself, mobile saved my life. That's why. So and you, and kudos after, to all my IPs I've ever had. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> after you, you were over the water and you said, shit, like we're going in. You said that like you're you just subconsciously, you kept on trying to fly. Yeah, yeah. You didn't even think uh, about uh, it. The, the, the shit was an acknowledgement of the fact that we were going in right now. I, I can't do anything else. Right. Um, and and that's how my hoist operator interpreted it. Because he said, he said he still had faith in me all the way down. You know, like, hey, Jones is going to pull it out. But when he heard me say shit, he's like, no, he's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but, my goodness. But, uh, yeah, I, his muscle memory kept flying and uh, mm -hmm. it worked. Yeah. So, so get, it really speaks to the value of, of going to the uh, mobile every year for, uh, for your sim flights and some EPs. And I think that's really important. Cause I, like I said, I feel like we've all probably been there where you're like, you want to see anything else? And people are like, nah, I'm done. Like, let, let's get out of here. Um, but hearing your story, I think should, um, really make people think and take it to heart that when you're there, like it's for a reason. Cause it, it yeah. might just save your damn life one day. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you never know what little skill you picked up somewhere is going to come in handy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of times there's those discussions well, in the 65 when you take a look at your flyout and it's like, oh, flyout's at 70 feet, I'm hoisting at 40 feet. Can I actually fly this out? You know, three-second delay. Uh, are we going to, you know, rotors are going to cone. We're going to maybe get into some sort of ground effect when we get over the water. So some people are uh, of the community of, well, if, if I'm below my fly out, uh, I'm going into the water, inflate the floats. Other ones are like, I'm going to try and fly it as much as I possibly can, you know, and, and you might put your nose on the horizon and get low over the water and then find yourself, oh shit, like we've just got into a little bite of clean air and now the shaking's gone away and you can actually make it out. Um, which I think is interesting because like there's two different camps. Uh, they kind of blend together though at the same time. Which yeah. one are you going to be in? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I'd say I wouldn't give up and just ditch it just because you say, well, my mathematical comp computation tells me we can't fly it out. I would, I would try to fly it out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how was the aftermath? You land uh, back at, uh, did you land at the nearest point of land or did you try to make it back to an airport? Yeah, we made it. We went to the airport. Okay. Yeah. 
Do you have a bottle of whiskey in your drawer? <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I was sure we must have done damage to the aircraft. I'm like, there's no way NR got that low and we didn't damage the aircraft. Yeah. We inspected the rotor blade, inspected everything. And, um, and because of the fact that, uh, the torque limiter actually prevented us from over torquing. There was no transmission damage either. And there was a, wow. um, we, there was no emergency procedure where you would in a, in a situation where you needed extra power that you could turn that, you would turn that off and, uh, and say, well, screw it. I'm going to destroy the transmission, but at least we'll fly out. Right. There was no, mm -hmm. there's no procedure for that. And the switch was in the overhead somewhere, whereas a single pilot, you're not going to find it. Right. So I never even entered the equation as to try to, get rid of torque limiting. Huh. But it act, there's an actual switch that would allow you to. Yeah. To, so huh, interesting. Yeah. Had, had time permitted, had there been an EP for that, had there been another pilot in the aircraft, maybe we could have popped that off and gotten the power back a little quicker. Did that, um, that particular situation have you hang it up after that? Was that what was? No, like? I actually kept flying for about another year. And Did then you? I just, <laughs> I, I decided, uh, I decided, uh, yeah, I'm getting a little old for that. That was about five years ago. So I'm 62 now. I was about 57, I guess. So yeah, 57 mm -hmm. years old. I don't need to be doing this anymore. But oddly enough, my last flight, my very last flight was the day after Christmas. I didn't want to to uh, to cause on my, uh, my, sh my fellow pilots to have to take all the duties over Christmas. So mm -hmm. I gave them enough advance notice when I was going to quit after the holidays. So my last night was on December 26. And we literally had 60 knot winds. 18 foot seas all night long on that night shift. The hangar door blew off the hangar. That's how windy <laughs> oh it was. God. And we, um, so we had, I think six or seven ships that night in those conditions. And uh, we were, we made our approach to one ship. And as we're coming to a hover, the bar pot said, uh Oh, I said, what? Forgot my vest. Cause you know, they have to wear a vest cause they hook into a D ring and mm -hmm. a hoist hook to get lowered down. Mm -hmm. And the pilot I was flying with said, uh, well, we can try to land. And I'm looking at this green ship with the big <clears throat> cargo cranes. Yeah, we're not going to do that. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not tonight. Not on my last night. We are not doing yeah. that. We're heading home. We're going to get <laughs> we're gonna, vest. We're going to charge the company for another round trip and get the vest. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. So my, my last night was pretty exciting. I was more than uh, more than ready to hang it up at the end of that night. That the you mentioned this already, but the, the conditions that you fly in as a Columbia river bar pilot are the, the things that are like cases are made of for like career level cases are made yeah. up for us. It's just routine. Night There's like, okay. In the winter, 60 here. knot winds, 18 foot seas in the middle yeah. of the night, we're going to do six yeah. evolutions of yeah. hoisting. And unlike the coast guard where we, we tend to do pretty high hoist way above the obstacles. They like to be really low. The bar pods don't want to spend any more time on the hook than they need to. So we tend to kind of come in, like under the crane. Really? <laughs> so, so you're looking at the crane rocking back and forth and the searchlight right next to you. And uh, yeah, so. Oh. Are they mostly coasty pilots? No, we it? had a couple coasties. Uh, Jeff Cotson for a while. Um, oh, God, I can't, Aaron Green uh, oh, flew with us for a while. But okay. then they get some guys that are just straight, came up through the civilian world. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so, a lot to ask. I feel like for someone that's doing, you know, eight minute, uh, Tampa Bay tours to then you yeah. know, come out and, yeah, and it takes this. a little, it takes a little time to get, uh, mm -hmm. some guys acclimate to it and some guys, some guys don't, but, uh, that hoist training, um, did they have a, um, self-grown program for teaching pilots how to hoist a ship? Yeah. Like that? Kind of a self-grown. Yeah. And they don't have a simulator. They don't send us to the simulator or anything. So that was kind of a deficiency in the program. It would have been nice to have a simulator. I think mm -hmm. there's one in Switzerland somewhere, but uh, the company didn't want to spend money for that. 
But yeah. um, anyway, it's uh, you know for for a post uh, Coast Guard career, if someone wants a little excitement, and again on a, on a nice day, it's just the best job in the world. You oh, fly absolutely! Out there, it's beautiful and hoist to a big old ship, and yeah. yeah, yes. But that was quite an experience. I would say so, sir. That's uh, <laughs> still got me thinking about it. Oh my goodness, that's a good one. Um, well, you're still invested in the Coast Guard, obviously. Uh, your son's a, a 65 pilot. Does he? Does he ever give you phone calls asking for, for piloting advice or, Hey, uh, <laughs> Hey dad, I had this case the other day, you know, what would you have done? Yeah. We talked, we, yeah, he, yeah. So I've got my, my oldest son is uh all Pat pilot and uh, flying 65s and uh, he's heading for his third tour now. And my middle son is a 60 pilot. Oh, I didn't know that. Up yeah. at Traverse. Okay. Yeah. And uh, oddly enough, um, it was my, my oldest son at the time, my middle son was not yet a pilot. And when I came back that night from that very bad day mm-hmm. at the office where I almost put the aircraft into water, it was, I called my son because I was like, he's the one guy I can call as a family member that will know what I'm talking about. Because mm-hmm. when you have a, an incident like that, I mean, you really want to just talk to somebody who gets it, right? A fellow aviator. Mm-hmm. So I called my son first and uh, got it off my chest. Yeah, it's like your own version of SISM. But, you know, maybe not have a program for it. Kind of. Yeah, just have yeah. somebody to talk about the case with. Yeah. Yeah, and then a couple hours later, I walked in the door at home, and uh, I just walked in the door, my wife took one look at me, and she's like, you almost crashed tonight, didn't you? Mm-hmm. No and she way. Literally, with, she said that. She's Whoa. like, what, what happened? You almost crashed, didn't you? Oh my she just knew by looking at my face. Yeah. Oddly enough, it was the same look I had on my face when, when I walked in the door in Traverse City after the detailer called me and told me we were going to New Orleans, I walked in the door and she just looked at my face and said, oh my God, we're going to New Orleans. Yeah. Like, she just knew. Oh my goodness. Well, shoot, Kenny, what do you got? You gotta I'm actually speechless. Man. I'm yeah. totally captivated uh, ah, by the a- stories. I've been hanging on the edge of my seat with every word. Um, thank you so much for your uh, time today. We typically like to end the show with um, either some piece of advice that you've gotten over the years or uh, something that you like to give to, you know, someone sitting in our seats, uh, standing duty. So, yeah. So a couple things when I, I on my first tour, I, I asked uh, one of my IPs, Dave Moore, who's now retired captain. I said, Hey, collateral duties flying. You know, I, I was kind of confused. What am I supposed to be focusing on collateral duties or, or, or the flight manual? And he said, well, Bruce, if you don't do your collateral duties well, the worst that'll happen is a year from now, we'll let you go and you can find another career. If you don't pay attention to the flight manual, you could kill yourself and your crew. Mm-hmm. So set your priorities accordingly. Yeah. You know, and you can do both, of course, but when it comes down to it, you got the crew's life in your hands as a pilot, right? You're responsible for being the best prepared pilot that, uh, that you can be. Another one is uh, sometimes you're, I think I mentioned earlier, sometimes the, the, the assignment you want the least could turn out to be very rewarding and a great experience. So make the best of it. Always ask for what you want from the detailer and don't change your dream sheet when they tell you to. Nice. So yeah, coming out of, uh, coming out of air station, New Orleans, 05 command. I'm, o, I'm now in 06. They're going to a, some crappy staff job somewhere. Right. But I had on my dream sheet, eight uh, training center, Yorktown and sector Lake, Michigan. And the detailer who was uh, now retired three-star Admiral Sandy Stowe's uh-huh. told me, Bruce, We've been over this before. You're not getting back-to-back commands, but I left it on my dream sheet anyway. 
And by uh, the dominoes started falling when different people got picked up for different postgraduate assignments. And suddenly I get a call from the detailer. I'm really, I'm really sorry to change your orders at the last minute, but I'm going to send you to Sector Lake, Michigan. I said, <laughs> in command? Yes. Well, okay. I guess I'll do that if I have to. I'll do so it. Just, uh, you know, don't change your dream sheet when they tell you to. Keep what you want on the list. I like that. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say, just volunteer for everything. You know, volunteer for deployments, volunteer for unusual training, volunteer for any kind of assignment. It's going to make life more interesting. It's going to make uh, you a better officer and an aviator. And also, you know, make you a little more competitive in our pyramid system that we live in. But mostly it's just, hey, take advantage of opportunities to do interesting stuff. If there's a solicitation to go to Nicaragua for, for two weeks to be the SAR advisor for some army exercise, go do it. Mm-hmm. I did that and it was great. Yeah. Sounds super fun. And you also get the benefit of knowing, yeah, I'm glad I'm not in the army. <laughs> <laughs> I got one more question for you, sir. Yeah. Uh, do you miss it? I get asked all the time, do I miss flying? I don't miss it a bit. I loved it for 30 years in the Coast Guard, mm-hmm. and a couple of years after. I loved every minute of it. But when I was done, I was done. It was yeah. like, hang that helmet up. I don't ever need to do it again. I've never looked back. I loved every minute of it. Don't miss it a bit. I like that. Yeah. It's awesome. a good way to end. Yeah, good. All right, Thank sir. You, sir. Thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Gotta take every chance to